Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Awesome Algo podcast. And today's guest is Zef Grunschlag. He is a senior software engineer from Algorand and he has been working in the industry. And please uh, correct me if I'm wrong for more than uh, for more than past 20 years. And he has an incredible academic background about which we're going to spend some time talking in, in the introduction. But the main topic of the episode is continuation on smart contract testing. And we are going to talk about the project that Zef is currently working on under Algorand called Graviton, which is a testing toolkit for smart contracts. And as always, um, I did my due diligence to prepare for the episode by uh, actually digging into the repository, cloning the repo, spending some time and going over the code base documentation and examples available. There will be some closing notes later in the episode where uh, Zef will also kindly talk a little bit about how open source developers and enthusiasts can actually help shape the project and potentially contribute since it's available public on GitHub and under MIT license. And with that, let's proceed with the episode. And first of all, Zef, huge thank you for being here as a guest. And it's incredible to have another episode also as engineer from Algorand and especially with your academic background. So perhaps we could kick it off with uh, the first question on your uh, background a little bit. Tell us and our listeners a bit about yourself and you know how you got into engineering in the first place. And we got plenty of time for each section, so don't feel constrained or rushed to answer any of the questions. Yeah, thanks, Al. It's uh, really uh, exciting to be on your podcast, and I, I appreciate all the work you've been doing uh, in your awesome Algo uh, repository to uh, cultivate uh, for other developers uh, resources uh, and make and I've actually use your uh, awesome uh, Algo site itself, uh, and I. Uh, so I'm very excited to be on. So yeah, so let Thank me you. tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I, my academic background in particular, uh, I got a PhD in math, and uh, the road to get there had some interesting twists for sure. Uh, I got a bachelor's in math first of all at Princeton, and it was a very interesting time at Princeton. Uh, some particular highlights. I learned algebraic number theory from Andrew Wiles. That's the man who solved Fermat's last theorem. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I've heard that surname before. And if I may, if I may ask, what, what year was this? Uh, this was in 1988 when I uh, took that course uh, from Andrew Wiles. And I remember that he was teaching us about the proof of Fermat's last theorem for the case n equals three. Oh, and this is also before he proved Fermat's last theorem. I don't think he's been doing any teaching of undergrad since he, that proof got accepted. And he was teaching the case for n equals three. So Fermat's last theorem is a theorem about uh, every possible uh, n uh, value of n. So he started off with maybe the most the second most trivial case, uh, n equals three. And uh, on two consecutive lectures, he got stuck halfway through the proof and called the lecture off. So, so uh, <laughs> this is something that 
hadn't happened to me with any other professor where he just like uh, getting stuck and says, okay, sorry, uh, I'll do better next time <laughs> and I'll show you the proof. Um, and I also remember seeing him at tea after I presented the final take-home exam uh, for algebraic number theory. Oh, and Princeton had this idea, uh, Princeton Math has this thing called T, where basically all everyone's invited every 4 p.m. just to hang out and have cookies and tea. And so, uh, yeah, so he was there, and it was a really great thing to have. Well, he, I was waiting for my results for my uh, final paper, which was 15 pages handwritten, uh, and I was anxiously hoping to get a good grade. And he, he told me that it was one of the most painful to read solutions that he had ever had to suffer through. And he could not find a mistake, though, so he had to give me an A. Uh, so, so, um, so therefore, um, and that kind of taught me, uh, maybe incorrectly, that uh, it's only important to be right. Style doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, at, at the end of the day, it's it's, it's all about the it's all about the content. Yes, but later I, I did understand uh, why he was so terribly um, unprepared. Uh, for class and lacking of patience. And this was because he was five years into the seven year stint where he was spending every free moment of the day hunkering in his attic and working on solving for Maslow's theorem. So I, I became a little more forgiving uh, of his approach uh, given the, the amazing uh, result that he came up with. Uh, and also later I, I, I learned to appreciate that style does matter Maybe it's technically sufficient uh, to get the code for a smart contract correct, but if uh, you have others that are supposed to understand the code or modify it or gain greater confidence that it's not going to cost you $10 million because of a bug, uh, you better simplify it as much as you can. So I also abandoned that uh, you know, very te tedious way of <laughs> uh, writing math. Um, other amazing people that I met uh, while at uh, Princeton was uh, John Nash. He's uh, as a Nash equilibrium and uh, in game theory, and also the subject of the movie A Beautiful Mind. So he would come to the afternoon teas. And John Conway, uh, the inventor of the game of life. Oh wow! And so, yeah, uh, and the cellular automata, uh, who was um, probably the most engaging of all the professors when it came to. Uh, to interacting with undergraduates. But he unfortunately passed away into 2020 from COVID. Uh, so, um, so I just very, feel very lucky to have experienced all that as a Princeton undergrad in math. Yeah, that must have been an amazing experience, uh, yeah. meeting uh, people with that caliber. And uh, have, have you had the chance to also participate in classes uh, under their lectures presented or? So yeah, so John, so, Nash uh, was or not really teaching, but he was still welcome by the communities and, and coming in um, for the tea. And uh, I just, no, I didn't actually take a class with John Conway, but one of my friends did his uh, undergraduate thesis with him. So I heard a lot of uh, interesting <laughs> stories that way. But, so yeah, so then um, I pursued a PhD in math at Berkeley, and there I fell in love with topology and decided to work with John Stallings, 
who was working on the Poincaré conjecture, now known as Perelman's theorem. Mm -hmm. And Perelman is the guy that refused the million dollar millennium prize for solving it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so I ended up doing my research in that area of combinatorial and geometric group theory. So my thesis included results that related certain families of groups to classes of formal languages and described the computational complexity of those various algorithms. Uh, and, um, and so that's, so it was very computational in nature and it was, it became, it was possible at that point to, to think about, about transitioning to theoretical computer science when I got my PhD. And that's what I decided I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, but basically that's when I ended up going and becoming a professor uh, at, uh, of, of computer science at Columbia University. Yeah. That's quite interesting. So you actually uh, had direct decision-making in your career in regards to switching to the computer science uh, by basically by the end of the proceeding of your PhD. Would you say you also had some significant influence back during the Princeton years or what was the main um, decision-making factor um, to, to, to switch from the math specifically to the computer science area? Well, it's been a love-hate relationship that I've had with uh, computer science. <laughs> I would say now I'm definitely in love forever. You know, it's, um, uh, I'm not going to abandon it, but I remember taking this class at, um, at Princeton where I learned C and uh, spending hours and hours getting stuck because I didn't, I didn't put a semicolon somewhere that I needed to put in. <laughs> and, and, you know, I did quite well in that class, but I, was, I, I thought this is ridiculous. I can't live my life uh, spending hours trying to figure out where semicolons are. And was it your uh, first programming language, by the way? It was no, it was not my first programming language, but it was you know, the first time I think I was doing something very uh, serious. Like we were actually uh, pro we were programming on a uh, Iris uh, computer, Silicon Graphics Iris computer, that lets you represent three dimensional models in real time and, and depict them. <laughs> and uh, so it was it was a pretty advanced uh code and lots of pointers and i didn't uh i didn't understand that yes you can learn how to debug very well and become much better than not and not spend 90 percent of your time debugging but more like maybe 10 percent with and with modern uh ides like vs code maybe only five percent where you're just staring and like having no clue what the hell's going on <laughs> but at the time uh I was like, okay, I, got, I need to find something purer than this computer science thing. And math seemed like a uh, better approach. But then I, I tem tem tempered with that. And uh, by the end of grad school, I was like, well, I, I, I took some courses in C and C++ and Java while at grad school. And, and my results were computational in nature. And so it's, it seemed like a good idea to get back into computer science that point interesting and maybe sorry just to backtrack a bit for the listener so there um in terms of time timeline so we so we mentioned uh, the 
Princeton and the the uh, the bachelor's in math. Then you did the PhD. And what year was the end of your pursuit for the PhD degree, essentially? Because there is also a certain period of time that we could just quickly cover for your experience in the industry before joining Algorand. And uh, I suppose the final question would be if you could tell um, tell us and our listeners a little bit about uh, your journey into Algorand. So if we could just slowly lead towards that, that would be awesome. Well, yeah, maybe I also just mention a little bit about why I was so turned on into computer science again as yeah. a, in graduate school uh, and why I wanted to end up at a place like Columbia uh, teaching computer science versus do, teaching math. Uh, and that was when I uh, ran into the Turing, Turing's halting problem and it really blew me away. And it's also the same like I, idea of Turing's halting problem, I think, is very related to Algorand. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that in a bit, but uh, just keep that in mind. So the halting problem is a very simple question. The question is, will this computer, computer program stop running? Uh, but such a simple question, it turns out to be impossible to answer using a computer. And the impossibility proof that uses Turing machine is elegant and simple. So that just like caught me. And I, 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 that, at that point I caught the computer science bug and I couldn't let, it didn't let go of me. And to answer that question in such a fundamental way to say no computer can solve this problem, you have to basically get into this very foundational idea of what is computable and what is not, or universal computation. So this notion of universal computation is that what you can do in a program written on the TRS-80 in BASIC, and that was the first uh, programs I wrote were in BASIC on a TRS-80, mm -hmm. or in, in Golang on a MacBook Pro, or using a pencil and paper, lots and lots of paper, or your brain. All of these sorts of problems that can be solved um, are the same. That is, they can be, you can translate one, uh, that problem across domains, and if you can solve them in one of the domains, you can solve them in any other. So uh, the algorithms we solve by pure thought are exactly the ones that we can write computer programs for. And there are very simple problems that humans cannot solve and computers cannot solve either. So this is a beautiful combination of humility and immortality. So we are immortal in having grasped this fundamental truth about what is the most powerful mind that you can have. And at the same time, we understand that our maximally powerful mind cannot solve some very simple to ask questions. And so that really you know, blew me away. And I, I really wanted to do my work in computer science after that. Yeah, yeah I, must, I must, must say that in general, like complexity and computability theory are just, in my opinion, I also got really fascinated by it during my uh, master's degree. And uh, I, I would say like, even if compa comparing it with, you know, algorithms and data structures, I think uh, 
the, this is one of those subjects that should should be foundational knowledge for 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 many uh, computer scientists out there because it just covers a, a very vast uh, area in terms of uh, computability and maybe another mind-blowing fact is that Alan Turing proved it in 1936 right this is uh, even before <laughs> there was any compute possible to 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 also practically prove it and uh, another fascinating factor is yeah the fact that it was essentially proven uh, way before uh, people were able to sit here like uh, like us and uh, talk over web platforms to record podcasts. <laughs> right, but even with his very theoretical understanding of computers, he was very practically minded as well. He helped uh, basically, he helped in the effort to decode the German cryptography. Yeah. Uh, and some say that if he, he wasn't... Yeah, exactly. And he, if he hadn't been involved or people like him hadn't been involved and had their successes, that World War II itself might have gone on another year or two. So literally, his work uh, was very practical as well, saving millions of lives. Uh, really an incredible story. So, okay, so yeah, so I got my uh, PhD in 1999, and then I went to Columbia after that uh, as a... Uh, professor, uh, assistant professor, focusing on undergraduate education. Uh, after that, I did work in industry as well on, on Wall Street and also did uh, teaching uh, at uh, undergrad, at uh, high school and middle school levels. I've, I've had a very uh, interesting career uh, going and doing lots of different things, including then being a data scientist for for my most recent job before Algorand, um, I just definitely like to dabble in lots of things, but um, computer science is definitely the most um, exciting uh, thing in my heart. Uh, and so, so how did I get to Algorand? Um, I first learned about Sylvia McCallie's work in zero knowledge proofs while teaching graduate cryptography at Columbia. Uh, and this concept of zero-knowledge proofs, I put there in the same league as that foundational work we just talked about by Turing and his cohorts uh, that was 50 years earlier before zero-knowledge proofs. So the idea that you can prove that you know something without revealing the actual information is kind of like the symmetric opposite of the idea that you can prove that you cannot know something. Yeah, it's so kind of like going back to what you mentioned with the, yeah, I, I think I, I understand it now is the whole thing problem. Yeah, so so it's, it's like, um, and so yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not surprising uh, given that how foundational is it, uh, Silvio McCauley and Shafi Goldwasser together, they got the Turing Award uh, for that work. And um, then, you know, I, I put that, I just knew about that and I thought, wow, this is really an amazing theorem uh, and amazing work of zero knowledge proofs. Uh, but then I didn't think much about it. But then during COVID, I found myself going in new, in new directions. And that's when I started doing a deep dive into blockchain tech and listened to various podcasts, heard about Sylvia McCauley's work in blockchain and Algorand. And I was like, oh, wait, Sylvia McCauley. I know that guy. <laughs> Let me, what, he's, he's working on the blockchain. Oh, very interesting. So, so then I, I 
dove deeply in there uh, and try to understand what is what is special about Algorand. And the more I learned, the more I was impressed by the elegant design principles at the heart of Algorand. In particular, uh, the original design has this very clever sortition algorithm whose only starting point is a verifiable random function. And this verifiable, this notion of verifiable random functions and construction comes directly out of original work by Mikali and other uh, colleagues. And in the Algorand blockchain, it gives rise to some very important properties. You can, you can get immediate settlement and finality during consensus. You have lack of forking, and you have this ability to have this so-called pure proof of stake where you cannot know until it happens who will propose the next block. So you cannot hope to corrupt the process unless you own uh, or control uh, close to the majority of the stake. So I was like, wow, this is a really well-designed blockchain. So if, I, if, I, if I'm going to work in blockchain, mm -hmm. where should I go? Like, it sort of became like, uh, pretty obvious. Algorand is a place. And um, it also gave me the confidence that Algorand is a company that focuses on getting the math, the cryptography, and the software engineering right. And definitely I've seen that in action since I joined. For example, we, it's, we don't just rest on our laurels. We have, for example, we have this uh, state proofs uh, coming, mm -hmm. coming on board soon. soon. And that's going to allow us to bridge other chain, to other chains in a more trustless and sound manner than what is the most popular current way of bridging. And we're also, even in state proofs itself, we're forging ahead with quantum resistant cryptography. Uh, and I'm confident that we'll transition to 100%, being 100% quantum resistant long before it becomes practically tenable uh, to use quantum cryptanalysis to crack blockchains. And just to uh, reiterate on that, we briefly touched this in episode one with Cosimo, but yeah, I I'd just like to emphasize the fact that I really like the approach that Algorand takes in regards to competition in the space and this realization that uh, the future is 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 a multi is multi chain. There, of course, won't be billions of chains out there in the future, but there is going to be a subset subset that will prove the use cases and the value, and are going to outlast the others. And uh, it's all about uh, allowing uh, them to communicate with each other because. Uh, that is the, the the foundation for the infrastructure that is uh, being built. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's really been. I mean, I, I feel like uh, uh, it's just you know, the most. This is definitely the the best job I've ever had. You know, it's really uh, great to be part of Algorand. Well, Zef, thanks for the. Amazing introduction. Uh, I'm sure there will be a few points in the upcoming sections where I might have to uh, refer back to the um, to the information we provided so far. But uh, going further um, with you joining Algorand, essentially, uh, the I already mentioned that the goal for this chapter for this episode is essentially to talk about Graviton. But before we are able to dive into Graviton, uh, let's kickstart a little conversation on the definition of Teal itself, because I feel like it's an important prerequisite and uh, 
to define it properly so that the listeners will essentially uh, have all the necessary information to, to, to easily follow the conversation. And no, we, for the listeners out there, we are not talking about colors here. When I say TEAL, it stands for a transaction execution and approval language, which is a assembly-like Turing complete language that is um, processed by the Algorand virtual machine. Um, so once again, Zev, stage is yours. If we could just quickly cover uh, on the TEAL and the definition of it. Well, first of all, I beg to differ. Teal is a color. And it turns out it's Brian Olson's favorite color. And Brian Olson was the first, uh, sort of basically the, uh, the inventor of Teal. The inventor of the Teal, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, that's, uh, that's an interesting detail. Yeah, so. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't officially stand for that color. It stands for transaction, execution, and approval language. Um, and you can think of, I, I sometimes pronounce it as TL, you know, because mm -hmm. L as an algorithm, but that's definitely just me mispronunciating it. Uh, yeah, so, so TL is the assembly language syntax that specifies programs executed by the algorithm, the algorithm virtual machine, also referenced called AVM. Mm -hmm. um, and the name, the original name it is transaction execution approval language makes most sense when you think about the, its original purpose. So the very first smart contracts that existed in Algorand blockchain were logic signatures. So they were stateless. And that setting setting, all that a program can really do is say yes or no. You can mm -hmm. either approve or reject a transaction. It has it has no state. You can't. There's no other artifact uh, that that's going to outlive it. So then it makes sense to think of it as an approval language. Um, and I, I and yeah. So um, so what Teal really is is comprised of a set of opcodes that are acting inside of the AVM's computational model. And so you might have opcodes that, okay, we have, for example, a stack, and you have a, maybe an opcode that says push this data to the stack, push, and you have a pop, just like you have in a regular stack. Uh, but you have other things as well. So you have temporary memory. Um, the temporary memory consists of the stack, which is uh, has a length up to 1,000, and each element on the stack is either a uint64 or a bytes array. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so um, you, it's capped by about 4K. So you, can, you can't have more than every stack element has at most 4K bytes. Mm -hmm. um, and you have 256 scratch slots, which you can think of them as sort of like as registers. So basically you can, uh, as you compute, you could say, you know, uh, I have this value for X, uh, I, maybe it was three, and now I squared it on the stack. It's nine. The top of the stack is nine. And I'm going to save that for later in scratch slot number 13. So now scratch slot number 13 has the value nine. But uh, we also have a permanent memory. That's for apps, not for logic sigs. That's the stateful contracts. We have local state, global state, and we have a new type of uh, 
permanent memory uh, under research called boxes. So I'll talk a little bit about all, mm -hmm. all those, all three of those. So the local state, every app, sorry, every account that opts into an app might have some local state, which might let you, um, for example, if it's, if you're opting into an auction app, for example, you may be, you want to keep track of what you bid. Yeah. Uh, you want to, and things like that. So that would be stored locally at the account level. And in the local state consists of up to 16 uh, variables. And these can be either UN64 or bytes of length up to 128. So you don't, mm -hmm. it's not, the bytes themselves aren't as big as can be on the stack. But it's enough to do kind of uh, more deeper type of floating point, uh, more higher precision floating point calculations. Mm -hmm. That so you can have 128 by, uh, bits instead of 64 bits. And the global state. So that's the creator, the account that creates the app, can also allocate global state. So that's state that's that every person that opts in, every account that opts in can see, but is just kind of global. Mm -hmm. And there you, you have a little more. You have 64 uh, of those uh, global state uh, variables, and they're also the same kind, which is either UN64 or bytes of length up to 128. And let, uh, let me also uh, mention boxes. So again, this is still in research, but I think I'm very confident that we will have boxes, at, uh, you know, in um, sometime this year. And boxes are unlimited in number, so every uh, app could have an unlimited number of boxes. But oh, with all these things, there's always a minimum balance requirement. So if you want more um, local state, mm -hmm. then the account that opts in to the app has to have more min balance to kind of kind of uh, set that aside. And global state is similar as well, and boxes as well. So um, maybe you end up being able to have a million boxes for some ridiculously crazy app. But in that case, there would, you know, there would be a significant uh, amount of algos that would have to be in that app's account um, to set those aside. And additionally, the we have the execution model, um, which is based on opcodes, uh, has a, every opcode has an associated cost. So that's kind of like in the Ethereum world, there is this notion of gas. There is no gas in Algorand smart contract development, but we have opcodes uh, cost. And most of the opcodes have a cost of just one, but some of the more, more intense uh, opcodes like uh, Based cryptographic signatures, things like that, can have much heavier uh, cost of computation. Therefore, the co opcode cost is significantly higher. So logic SIGs allow you up to 20,000 uh, of total cost for every computation. But apps, that is stateful apps, uh, only allow you 700 total cost. Mm -hmm. However, uh, we we allow you to app decide. There's a notion of opping up. That is, 
if an app has an inner app call inside of it, it you can pull the budget, the op code cost budget. So if you, you have one inner app, instead of just having 700 total costs, you can have 1,400, two, two times 700. And you can keep on pulling. If you have a very, very complex type application, uh, you can up, up, have up to 255 uh, inner app calls. So for, two, for a total of 256 apps all inside of one call, uh, and that gives you uh, up to almost 179,000 mm -hmm. uh, cost budget altogether uh, for your max out. So, so that's kind of our way of um, letting you have more complicated code without having to kind of put those in a group transaction or something. I can do it all in one app call. And just to um, backtrack a little bit on the definition of the opcode, because, uh, well, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the definition from computing that it's, you know, a portion of machine language that specifies the operations to be performed. But what's Algorand take on the definition of opcode? Um, I'm not sure if I, <laughs> I have, you know, ready in my mind, like, official Algorand definition, but I, I would think of it as, you know, yeah, I work with the actual code and mm -hmm. an opcode maps to a function in, you know, in Go, right? We implement uh, our AVM in Golang. And so there is actually, you could look at our open source and you'll see that every opcode has a, there is actual function in Golang and it, it'll do, uh, it, it's, you know, it's not, actually assembly it's actually mm -hmm. doing stuff in go so we try to be that's why we have a lot of you know we maybe that's why we used you in 64 from from the mm -hmm. very beginning that's kind of a go native type uh uh integer uh unsigned integer so yeah so in the end of the day that's i, I think i think of an opcode is just some go functionality <laughs> mm -hmm. interesting yeah, I mean, it's it's just that, uh, uh, you know, we're uh, build, building up all the prerequisites to uh, but, but, yeah, but there are, So just wanted to give a little I, I should say, yeah, there are, so I should say there are some uh, specifications for all. We have the Algorand Foundation um, has, owns the specs. And, you know, before we have to kind of work, we work with Algorand Foundation to make sure that uh, opcodes make sense and are approved and, they are defined in some formal sense. Like this is what the opcode is supposed to do. It's not just like look at the code. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. It's just the code is supposed to adhere. But often, like there's you know, like the user community say, well, we want, we really need this such and such opcode. And we might, as developers, try to experiment and look say, hey, that, that sounds like a good idea. We have a reference implementation for it, uh, and then we might, uh, you know, there's, there's a back and forth with the foundation. Uh, it's not always you know, they're very open to new ideas and wherever they come, whatever the good ideas are, wherever mm -hmm. they come from. So it's not like we're just listening, you know, for the foundation to tell us, we need this upcode, do it. You know, sometimes that happens too, but yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, the listeners out there uh, also re could recall uh, some mentions and references we made in the episode one with Cosimo as well. There is... Uh, a collection of the um, documents called ARCs, which is Algorand's take on the RFC documents, and you could essentially uh, inspect them. Uh, they're all available on GitHub, and uh, you could essentially dive into any specification you might be interested in. Yeah, 
So, exactly. Uh, yeah. Going back on the topic of teal, um, in contrast with languages, um, other popular languages uh, or for other blockchains out there, such as um, Solidity, uh, or if we are looking at general purpose languages, uh, is there any specific um, and I would say concise reason that you could say that was um, behind Teal, you know, being designed as this um, assembly-like language, essentially, in contrast with, uh, with other tool? Because I suppose, um, of course, there is a huge benefit in terms of computation and performance, uh, but I, I suppose the other aspect is the appeal towards uh, the general Web3 space and the engineers out there who are trying their hands on this and uh, assembly-like languages uh, in this day and age don't feel like something that is um, th that have a quick learning curve in some sense. Yeah, I, to I definitely appreciate that, though I think um, given my history to having taught computability, I always loved Turing machines as they were. <laughs> so like, wow, this is really cool. I really love the idea that you can um, write smart contracts in very Turing-like uh, language. Mm -hmm. But um, actually, I don't think there is really that big of a dichotomy uh, between Algorand um, and Teal and um, the world of, the, so the bigger world of like Ethereum type, uh, Solidity type uh, programming. And, and I think it's really a question of emphasis. So from a smart contract philosophy point of view, there's really more that Algorand and Ethereum landscape have in common that makes them different. I mean, really, uh, Ethereum has the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, and that's the analog of our AVM. But yeah. uh, the, the Ethereum Foundation did put forward a Solidity pretty early on as a recommended language to compile into EVM bytecode. Um, there's other ways you can do it too, like Viper, uh, from my understanding, uh, that compile to their bytecode. And similarly, we have PyTeal, which is kind of like Solidity. And there are other ways to generate Teal from a higher level language perspective, like Reach. And I, I'm pretty sure we'll that and there's other other ways as well, like third party uh, approaches. Um, and I think that that ecosystem is just going to grow. But if you look at our history early on, we it's true we there was no higher level language, so you had to to write in Teal, and that made a lot of sense early on. It wasn't that big a, an issue because we were only supporting stateless logic SIGs. And intentionally, uh, Teal was not even Turing complete at the time. So it wasn't very powerful. And therefore, the advantage of using a high-level language wasn't as big. Like, for example, you want to be able to write a for loop. Well, you couldn't write a for loop <laughs> in mm -hmm. the very first version of, of Teal. That would be impossible because you couldn't have a back jump. Um, and so, you know, it made sense, like, you know, just... I think that's part of the philosophy here. Just uh, address the problem at hand and uh, don't, you know, see how things evolve. And yeah, I think we were, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know for sure that we knew that we were going to end up going, going, to, end up going to, a, a more Turing, to a Turing complete model. Uh, but I, I bet you that was the sense. And, but even with that being the sense, you're like, well, this is mm -hmm. the problem at hand. We, you know, let's not, 
you know, put the cart in front of the horse. So we just have, there's no reason to kind of I see. start. I see. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is just something that uh, for, you know, certain group of engineers or certain domains may may have seemed like a misconception back in the early days and uh, like the reason I brought this up is essentially to put this emphasis on the fact that the ecosystem is not stale it keeps expanding there's higher level languages and solutions being built for that so uh, I I think Teal should uh, like the fact that uh, for some people it may seem like it's an assembly like language uh, shouldn't sh shouldn't be off-putting because uh, there are just so many ways these days uh, that abstract away that layer and allow you to transpile it from different uh, languages and from languages that are essentially convenient for yourself. And uh, the learning curve will only get better as, as the ecosystem is growing in some sense. Yeah, I think also if you looked at uh, the original Ethereum uh, history, back in 2014, there wasn't Solidity I believe, and then mm -hmm. you would have had to write EVM bytecode, I would think. So no one remembers that anymore because it's like that maybe you had such a small number of people that cared about it at that point. But and now, like, so if you compare the number of people that developers that care about developing for Algorand uh, now compared to the time early on in Ethereum's history, uh, it's probably a lot bigger. So maybe that's but it's more of an issue. And so people... You know, um, it, the, it seems a little odd that we have uh, this teal, but I, I, I don't mm. think, I think really it seems like most people, uh, more and more people are developing either in PyTeal or Reach. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think it's as, um, you know, as a big an issue. Yeah. Going further to um, finally make a, a, a segue into testing, what would you say are the most challenging aspects of testing smart contracts uh, written in Teal? Yeah, so my own challenges and what motivated me to come up with Graviton um, is I wanted a super quick way to use test-driven development when developing in PyTeal. So uh, to, for those listeners not familiar with test-driven development, test-driven development is the idea that before you actually write the code that you're interested in writing, you write a test for the code. And of course the test will fail because there's no code backing it. And then you write the code and get the original test to pass. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I like to develop uh, whenever possible. But I wouldn't be able to do the same thing in PyTeal. Uh, and so for example, suppose I want to write a subroutine for the cube root of a number. I should be able to write a unit test that just as I would in regular Python that asserts that the cube root of eight is equal to two and that the cube root of nine errors because it's not integers. Suppose it's a cube root that only deals mm -hmm. with integers. And then I should be able to write a PyTeal subroutine that computes the cube root and run that unit test against it and see immediately if that PyTeal subroutine works or doesn't. But, um, so that was like the main challenge for me. And I think that's in a pretty good spot. I, I feel like I could do some, something like that now uh, with Graviton and PyTeal. 
But there are many other challenges. That's just I'm just not, I'm not a typical algorithm developer. I'm a core developer, uh, and end users uh, have different needs. Uh, so our product team actually has researched this very question: like what what is the biggest uh, challenge in testing? And often developers submit an app call transactions, and either it succeeds or it fails. And if it fails. All you know is that it failed, and you don't know why. So that, yeah. that can be very frustrating. Um, and it's even more pronounced if you're using, if you're authoring in PyTeal, for example, because there's an extra layer of indirection. Maybe you got, you did get some kind of opcode-related error or something like that, um, but it's not going to help. But then you're working in PyTeal, you don't even realize there's an opcode. Now you should. I think I, I strongly <laughs> encourage anybody developing in PyTeal to understand. Uh, the opcodes that are being used uh, because you want to understand costs involved and so on. But that's a separate question. Now, another problem that people have pointed out is coverage in a formal sense. Like, I, I think this is not just a problem for Algorand. I think this is just a generally difficult problem across all blockchains. But uh, the, the Solidity space is more developed, not surprising. It's been around for much longer. So, um, so they do have, I think, more ways of addressing this. But there ought to be a way of enumerating all the possible relevant inputs that inform a smart contract and test against these. So there's one way would be formal verification. So you analyze the code and input domain and give a formal specification for that. Now, I know there is a company called Runtime Verification. Mm -hmm that uh, has been used in, for various Algorand smart contracts. I don't know much about their specifics, but um, that would be nice, for example, if there's also an open source version of that. They do the um, audit reviews for the smart contracts, right? They do a lot of reviews, yes, for yeah, smart contracts. And they use formal methods, mm -hmm. from my understanding. Um, then there's another thing that would be great uh, for for understanding testing across important inputs. That's the technique of fuzzing, and you, that's where you a program's compilation helps guide automatic test case generation using genetic algorithms. So that's actually part of fuzzing is now part of a core um, Golang. Like Golang actually lets you very easily do fuzz testing. Interesting. So, so that would be, you know, a very nice thing to be able to do, say for for teal uh, programs. Uh, but I think that's also a very hard problem. And then the last thing in this this nature of basically being able to enumerate all possible relevant inputs is this is a little bit more at hand called it's called property based testing. So in Python, there is a, uh, the, the hypothesis library that does property-based testing. So there, you don't necessarily have to understand the compilation of a program, but you still have to, you still generate very wise uh, inputs. For example, maybe like if your input, you look at all integers, all positive integers, well, this wise property-based test will test the case n equals zero because yeah. that's the edge case, uh, like boundary conditions and things like that. So 
So I think the property-based testing would be a very useful addition. And that's, I think, within reach, even within Graviton. It doesn't exist yet so much, but uh, you could, I could imagine a future version of Graviton being smarter about um, using, like looking at the domain and maybe leveraging already existing libraries in Python like Hypothesis mm -hmm. to generate very smart um, test cases. That's very interesting to hear that uh, the one of these inspirations is this Python library, which uh, I, I had some brief exposure to as well. I actually use it for one of the uh, Algorand uh, projects that I maintain open source. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's for listeners out there. You know, if you have a Python code base and uh, if you want a sol solid setup for unit testing, but at the same time you're uh, pretty lazy to generate the test cases, uh, but you want a very extensive coverage and catch various interesting edge cases. I think uh, I definitely check out Hypothesis. It's a very powerful uh, framework for testing. And to expand a little bit on this, uh, so we are already touching on some of the motivation um, points for the creation of the Graviton. and. Uh, one particular thing I just also briefly wanted to touch before we dive completely into it, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners of, from coming from the engineer's background, they realize the importance and uh, the vastness of terminologies and practices when it comes to testing and software development. And you mentioned the uh, TDD methodology, which uh, often these days, I suppose, also goes with the behavioral uh, driven development, uh, which is also a nice methodology for um, software development, I would say. Uh, but one particular thing that I found interesting from the Graviton documentation um, is this notion of the black box testing. And if I understand it correctly, black box testing is uh, a term that is uh, abstract enough to be applicable to various layers of testing, starting from unit tests, uh, then integration components, uh, testing, contract testing, and etc. Could you expand a little bit on on um, your take on the black box testing and the importance of it in um, in Graviton, essentially? Yeah. So for me, black box testing connotes uh, two different kinds of black boxes. There is maybe a more traditional sense in software development uh, that is a box that is black, which is the opposite of transparent. That is, you only care about the inputs and outputs. And but also there is the black box that an airliner, commercial airliners use to to help with post-mortems. Mm -hmm. So the first kind is viewing the code as a black box. So you can imagine you have a flow diagram and you have your function that you're testing. It's you think of it as a black box. The inputs are going in and you just observe the outputs. You don't mm -hmm. know what's happening inside the black box, and you're just asserting that. The outputs are exactly what you think they should be. Um, and for Algorand, this kind of strict sense black box testing can be done with standard execution on the private or test network. It doesn't require the dry, the so-called dry run capability because we're only curious about the inputs and the outputs. We don't need to dig deeper into what exactly happened during the execution. But uh, I think the second kind of black box is even more informative. 
And that can be done during with dry run. So the second kind, again, is that the black box that is in on every passenger airline and is supposed to and every passenger airline is supposed to carry in its cockpit. And this black box is an almost indestructible piece of tech which can be recovered after the crash and records important bits of information like the elevation, the speed, the angle of the plane, the final minutes before the crash. And in Graviton, um, the analog to elevation, speed, angle of the plane, and so on, are things like the stack trace of the run during the entire run, the evolution of the scratch slots, um, mm -hmm. the logs that were that resulted, and so on. Um, and this this sort of information can be provided, uh, and you can answer questions like, what was the top of the stack at the end of the execution? What was the final log? Which is very important now with our ABI methods, which I can talk about a bit as well. Uh, but now when you think of smart contracts as method calls with outputs, those are logs. And so the log is very, the final log is very important. Mm -hmm. um, you can also ask things like, what was the maximum height of the stack? Maybe we're getting close to running out of the, getting close to the thousand um, height limit or something like that. What was the final state of the scratch variables? What were error messages that occurred? What was the cost of executing? And also uh, the, the most thing, the basic thing you need to be able to answer is like, did this execution pass or reject? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I, I didn't realize the extent to which uh, there are some analogies that are being uh, taken from the definition of the black box testing. And uh, yeah, I think it's a, certainly a great way to to also counter towards some of the uh, motivation, I suppose, behind the creation of the framework. But uh, going back to um, Graviton, essentially, so I think it's uh, certainly time for us to finally dive a bit deeper into into it perhaps uh, as, as an entry level question you could uh, just briefly describe uh, why and how did the did the name come to come to be and I suppose you got inspired by uh, some theories from quantum gravity uh, if, if you could just briefly tell uh, to our listeners uh, how was the inspiration for the um, for the name for this uh, library essentially. Yeah, so you know there was um, various ideas for names, all physics related, like Higgs, like the Higgs boson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that got next. People didn't like that. Um, but so the, the basic idea, graviton, the graviton is a particle that hasn't been uh, proven to exist yet. Uh, I think many, most physicists that are that work in gravity probably believe it exists, mm -hmm. but it, it's never been truly discovered. And that I, I like that idea. It reminded me of smart contracts in general because smart contracts, you want to be able to prove there's something, be able to prove that it's totally correct, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. possibly wrong. There's no human error. That, there's no human factor in there. But typically, I think it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah, maybe there are some formal verification techniques, but even with the formal verification, maybe there's a bug in the fundamental implementation of it, you know, like it turns out that 
Um, the AVM is 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 making a mistake somewhere. I, God forbid, but <laughs> that could happen. You know. Um, and and so you want to be able to kind of find the needle in the haystack mm -hmm. that proves that the thing is correct. Just like you're trying to, you need enough experimental evidence to prove that a graviton exists. Mm -hmm. So it's not exactly the same analogy, but I, I like the idea that we need to to be totally confident. We need to run experiments. It's not good enough just to write the code and think it's correct. You need to be able to test it. And you want so you want to do as much testing as quickly as possible and easily as possible. So because of that, uh, that's why I, I like Graviton. I see. So to continue on the Graviton, essentially, uh, just to backtrack the, a bit for the listeners, Graviton is a software toolkit for black box testing of smart contracts written in Teal. And uh, I think it's finally time to cover some of the key features of the uh, of the package. We now have some information uh, on the motivation behind the creation of the framework. And this was a take on essentially enabling test-driven development um, for Teal smart contracts in the Algorand ecosystem. But uh, if you could just expand a bit, Zef, on the overview of the key features of uh, Graviton and in your opinion, what makes it special? Yeah. So as far as I know, uh, what makes it what makes it special? As far as I know, it, um, and there are no other public repos in the Algorand ecosystem that get this exact same functionality. Uh, is uh, I guess the first thing is the ability to call teal programs or ABI methods or PyTeal subroutines and immediately make assertions about the outcome of those ex executions in Python. So it's going, going back to the test-driven development approach. So for example, if you have an ABI method that takes a dynamic string array and supposedly concatenates those strings and takes the SHA-512-256 hash of them, you can simply supply that array as a Python list to Graviton, call the, so the dry run executor object on it, and assert that the run's last log is equal to the Python computation of that hash. And you can do it very, you know, without any other machinery with mm -hmm. inside of Graviton. So you, um, no, this is this is the PyTeal version of it. But everything, there's all, you know, uh, if you look at the PyTeal repo, it uses Graviton and, and expands on it uh, and to make it easy to use with PyTeal as well. And so Graviton figures out how to set up the dry run for you and convert the inputs to what the dry run expects and then knows how to decode the types back into Python. Uh, in this case, uh, to bytes object of length 256 for this hash example. Mm -hmm. And so you just write the test in Python. You just say, well, here's I, I know how to compute this in Python. This is how you do for the SHA-512-256. Let's have this PyTeal code run this subroutine. And did I get the same thing? And so that, that's kind of number one uh, thing that it can do. So-called, I, I call this Python assertions, being able to make assertions in Python. The next uh, idea that's kind of related to that are so-called program invariants. Um, so this is the ability to assert that invariants 
hold about particular TEAL programs, ABI methods, PyTEAL subroutines on a set of inputs. So for example, if you look at the PyTEAL repo, there is a subroutine that computes the greatest common divisor of two numbers using the recursive Euclidean algorithm. So, um, so we have the greatest common divisor, like the greatest, it's the number, the, the biggest number that divides two numbers that are given. So for example, mm -hmm. the greatest divisor of 10 and 15 is five. Because mm -hmm. five, you know, five divides 10 and five divides 15. One is also a divisor, but it's not the greatest common divisor. So um, the last log in this case, we just, so the way that you write the, this uh, invariant, in the invariant is that when you take this ITL GCD computation and you take its last log, the results, it should be the same as Python math libraries GCD. That's all it is. You just say, like, though we assert that those two things are equal. Or maybe you assert more things. You assert that you think that your PyTIL program should store it right before it logs out, but it stores it in scratch slot zero. Mm -hmm. So you can assert, oh, scratch slot zero is also going to, in the Python world, be equal to um, you know, the base, uh, the greatest common divisor of the two numbers. You can also make this for, it turns out that this, that's the top of a stack. You also want it to be at that end of the execution, have that value, just to, so you know that the program is working the way you think it is. And maybe you also want to know that you don't take up too much uh, stack. You, you, your stack height never gets uh, too high, so you, you can give balance. They are also part of the invariant. And also you want to have an invariant that no errors are encountered, and so on. And then you can state those invariants and then run, run them against 20 random pairs of numbers less than 1,000, say, and just uh, kind of declaratively declare what variance should hold and then automatically run a test uh, asserting that. But you, you do, but you do have to provide the inputs by hand. That's where I, there, it's a natural dovetail. A future version could, I could see, using hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this to, process so, would be simplified. So even, that part be, yeah. so even that part can be automated. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I want to be able to do, uh, and I think it helps it stand apart, is the so-called exploratory dry run analysis, or EDRA. And this is uh, basically a spin on EDA, Explorat exploratory data analysis. So I that's this is coming from your uh, experience as a as a data scientist previously. Exactly. Yeah. So in data science, we have the, the basically when you first say you're coming up with a machine learning model, uh, the first thing you want to do is you want to understand what is the data that's being <laughs> that's being modeled. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, what? So you you typically look at you put it all inside of a spreadsheet and you have lots of rows and you look at what are the other columns that. Oh, we have a column for uh, salary, and so so that's uh, numeric. I mean, then we might have um, suppose I don't know, like uh, you're trying to predict uh, salary based on which college somebody went to or something. Like mm. that. Yeah. 
And so maybe then you have um, a column for college, undergraduate. And then, so, but that's a discrete. So you have to, oh, you have to understand these, that there's a, a set of 10,000 possibilities for the second column, but infinite many possibilities for the first column. And then you might want to know, what does it mean? What is the median? And, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and are there, is there any missing data that's not in this? Um, in this data set before I start before I start writing a complicated ML uh, model to try to simulate it or to, to predict it. So similarly, before I even know how to do like this, this example of program invariants, what are the, I want to know what are the program invariants? Well, how do I know what the program invariants are? Some of them, obviously, yeah, I wanted to compute the thing I wanted to compute, but what if I want to know, be able to assert something about the size of the stack? Maximum size mm -hmm. of the stack. Well, I want an easy way to just dry run um, the the subroutine, the PyTeal subroutine, or whatever the teal snippet, and again to lots and lots of inputs, and just give me a a spreadsheet that shows me all the the possible uh, variables. I can take mean on them. I can do other things. I can then I can even draw graphs in Jupyter based on them. Um, so. So that's so in the PyTeal repo. If you look at the Euclidean algorithm example, it continues and it generates a, a comma-separate val, uh, values, a CSV file, with run row for each of the dry runs, and you can quickly eyeball the fine and see what the final opcode cost final was. Message, yeah. yeah, final message, the value of the scratch variables, the top of the stack, and so on. Um, and this can be, and in the Graviton repo, there is a Jupyter notebook with a logic sig that's supposed to send an amount varying from zero to 10 algos, depending on how close the logic sig arguments were to a solution of an algebra question. And basically, so inside of a Jupyter notebook, you load those dry runs results, you collect them into a data frame, and then you can gra graphically analyze the behavior of the logic sequence on a 3D graph, and uh, and just see ah yeah, it does you could see understand like if you saw that all of a sudden it goes up in a place you didn't expect you know oh there's something wrong with this. Um, so so I, you know I, I thought this this could be a use, useful in certain cases as well. I see. Yeah, I would say the the key features are certainly impressive. I can see a lot of potential in there, especially. Um, as as the project continues evolving and uh, the user experience in regards to easily integrating it into existing projects, uh, as as this uh, aspect is uh, improved over time as well, I, I believe there's great potential in Graviton becoming a, a go-to solution for, especially for projects who uh, rely on pure PyTest and PyTeal for development of their smart contracts, but I'm sure there will be um, perhaps uh, other clients for other languages. Um, I, I'm just a bit curious as well on uh, what was the reason behind using Python as a, uh, because if I understand correctly, the majority of the implementation is done in Python for Graviton, right? Um, and given your mentions of uh, the Golang, for example, um, Perhaps you could just briefly expand on the uh, on the reasoning behind uh, specifically choosing uh, Python. Was it somehow influenced by the fact that there was a need for some advanced integration testing in PyTeal? 
Um, yeah, this because the original genesis of this was wanting to be able to test PyTail. And so it, it made sense for the test to be run under, you know, in a PyTest framework and um, be able to understand Python, basically. Uh, though there are some limits, right? I think if I had to choose if I had to choose another language, uh, that would be just that can do other things that are better for us would, for testing would be Go itself. Go because, uh, for example, the fuzz testing capability, I think it's mm -hmm. going to be nearly impossible um, to do the fuzz testing in Python. Uh, but you know, it's it's a tool. Uh, it's probably not going to be the tool for every possible kind of testing, but it, it's very helpful, especially in Python. And if you're in Python, you're kind of stuck. You should use Python. Yeah, I see. For the listeners out there, I'm sure uh, the overview of the key features of the Graviton is something that might spark a lot of interest uh, from the um, ecosystem, especially from people listening to this podcast. Um, any chance uh, you could perhaps mention on what would be the easiest way to uh, get started and eventually contribute to the repository if um, there are some you know, open source contributors out there interested in? And just to reiterate on the fact, Graviton is a under active development at the moment, and there is uh, you, you could actually by just you know subscribing to the repository, you could uh, see the evolution development process uh, in real time, essentially, which is a, a pretty interesting aspect to uh, have an opportunity to look into the um, development process of uh, of Graviton, which, as you can hear by by uh, by the description from Zeph, is. Um, in the longer term is going to provide a lot of power in regards to testing of smart contracts until. Yeah, so in terms of uh, community contribution, what uh, what is a good way to to do that? Is that your question? Yeah, like if, let's say there is uh, you know some person who finished listening to this episode and he is uh, just really eager to try on Graviton. Uh, what would be the easiest uh, um, or what would be your advice for a great starting point just to get familiar with it? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. I think the easiest way is to look at uh, our issues. So th there are issues that are labeled with community welcome tag. And those are very, I think, low-hanging fruits. So you could get started and help us out. For, so we would like some improvements in our CI-CD process. Uh, and a, a big one that would be an easy win uh, is being able to pip install Graviton. Right now we can't pip install it. Um, so we'd, have, we'd love to start publishing a repo PyPy. And um, I think, but don't, you know, please don't limit yourself to just those. Uh, but if you, if you have a clear no-brainer bug fix, you could just open a PR, like a, like a two, three line improvement. I think that's, Going to be welcome uh, without any questions. Oh, there be some questions, but <laughs> you should feel like you can always open a PR to, to, to have a bug fix. But if it's something less immediate or it's a more complicated bug, then I recommend creating an issue first uh, and start discussing. Um, but uh, always feel free to um, to 
I mean, I have a, uh, yeah, the, I think my email is open. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, you can email me, but I'm not sure what, how obvious it is what my email is. Uh, oh, I, yes. I, I think I think there might be an email attached to your commits that you make on GitHub, right? Okay, yeah. So I'll so. probably see that on GitHub. Yeah. So um, the most committed uh, open source contributors, I'm sure they'll find a way to to reach out to to Zeph. <laughs> and um, to recap on the section on Graviton that we just had, so we had the discussion on. Um, some of the prerequisites uh, required to understand the topic. We covered the motivation behind the creation of the framework. Um, we had a overview of the key features of Graviton, what makes it special. And uh, Zef was kind enough to essentially go over all the types and provide an overview of different types of assertions um, that are available in Graviton, perhaps as a closing note for uh, Graviton specifically, um, is it possible for you to provide uh, just a brief glimpse into the future, you know, developer roadmap? What's the future for Graviton looks like, essentially? Well, I think um, we have the ABI coming on board, and I didn't talk much about the ABI, but that stands for application binary interface, which uh, is a way to uh, interact like officially through our the ARC4 specification mm -hmm. with Algorand smart contracts. And we have we've gone uh, part of the way to exposing that, but I think there's a lot more improvements that, that can be done. Um, and and uh, so I think unifying the way we 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 test uh, like dry runs using this new atomic transaction composer uh, is a big would be a big win. I think what I mentioned before the hypothesis like testing the property mm -hmm. testing would be a big win. And um, as dry run itself uh, hopefully improves in the future, I think there's there's a lot of discussion around trying to improve dry run and making even more realistic and handle more situations that currently dry run cannot handle, uh, keeping up with those changes uh, and making them super easy to use. You know, there could be a time when you could do 90% of your smart contract testing in the dry run mode. Mm -hmm. I think, I think always be, you'll always need to test on a private network, on a test environment. Never tell you don't do that. You should, you should always ha do that. But uh, there could be a, a time where you could get most of your confidence already purely in dry run in a very uh, easy to to do manner and very quickly. And that's kind of like where I'd like Graviton to be at and make possible. Um, so so I think just keep. But dry run itself has to improve, and I think it will. I hope it will. Just, just wanted to mention uh, an, an, another analogy that I think about when I uh, first stumbled upon Graviton. And uh, I'm not a, a big expert on reach, but if I understand it correctly, 
they also have some sort of uh, pre-built formal verification methods uh, for for the test. So uh, when I first time seen the Graviton available and uh, looked into the documentation, it seemed like um, an analogy of that capability in Reach, but an analogy that is perfectly suited for um, projects that rely on pure PyTeal and PyTest, essentially. This is that mis missing link for people who uh, were, I, I suppose, PyTeal purists and uh, were wondering if Algorand is uh, working on something like that. And the answer is yes. As you can see, uh, Graviton is uh, essentially there to address that particular niche. All right, Zef, so um, I'm sure there is a lot of uh, topics that we can continue uh, discussing on, on, on Graviton. And uh, I, I'm actually thinking that we could perhaps do a little checkpoint some uh, many months from now to see uh, after after Graviton will also add some of the things that you've just mentioned in regards to the roadmap. Um, you know, from my side, uh, I, I hope that this episode is going to uh, help a, a bit with the adoption because I feel like adoption at some point is going to become a very important factor as well. Um, so that there would be feedback coming from the from the users, and uh, you would be able to reflect on the on the analytics and how people in the ecosystem are uh, relying on Graviton and etc. Um, but as I did with the episode one, I'm just really curious to ask this question to you on, um, and this is off topic from Graviton. But what um, advice uh, would you give for software engineers? who want to try their hands on blockchain development or on, on Algorand or just generally get into uh, web-free space. And I asked this to Cosimo in episode one, and I figured it will be very interesting to you know keep asking this from different guests to see their different takes on that. So I uh, would love to hear your uh, take on it, essentially. So I, I think, uh, it, as always, it really depends where you are in the process. But there is a brand new entry point on our developer portal for absolute beginners, but even if you're not an absolute beginner, I think if you're a beginner to Algorand, I recommend you go through them. These are the so-called Algorand challenges, and they are a nice way to learn by doing. Currently, there are only four challenges, but they're already covering some of the main ideas and differentiators uh, for Algorands, and you get some cool NFT batches as part of the process. So, um, so the first exercise is on payment transactions, so you'll actually have a challenge to create a payment transaction, either in Python or JavaScript. Then ASA creation. So ASAs are the native tokens that you can be created on the Algorand blockchain um, that either represent tokens or NFTs. Uh, smart contract creation and deployment is one of the challenges. And atomic transactions, another differentiator of the Algorand blockchain, which makes it uh, a very inherently secure way to, to send transactions to the blockchain. So um, if even if you're a seasoned smart contract developer, I urge you to try those. And once you have that under your belt, there are many other directions you could go. I suppose um, if you're a, a smart contract developer, you'll want to figure out which how you want to interact with the blockchain. And I think that's an easier decision. Basically, you're going to typically choose the language that you're comfortable with. So we support natively for languages, um, Python, Go, JavaScript, and Java. 
and but there's other community-driven develop uh, SDKs as well, and C, C Sharp and and other words as well. So that's kind of easy. So that's that that decision point is pretty easy. Like yeah, choose a language you're comfortable with and learn the SDK. But how do you actually uh, write the smart contracts? That's a little harder decision. Um, you can do it for very simple programs. You can write them directly in Teal. But we talked about this. I think it's getting less and less tenable for complex programs, given the complexity of the AVM now, to write them in, in pure uh, Teal. Uh, but yeah, that, some people can do that. Uh, by all means, go ahead. But I think for most people, probably want to choose a higher level language like PyTeal or Reach. Um, and maybe in the future, we'll have uh, other really well-supported options as well. But um, you know, I don't want to speculate too much about that. But I think I believe there'll be other options as well. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for for the advice. And and with that, um, Zef, thank you for joining this episode. I think we covered a lot of very interesting topics. Uh, I personally learned learned a lot of extra information about Graviton, especially on the influences and. Uh, uh, it, it, it's really amazing to see uh, how you managed to also leverage some of your experience in different domains of computer science uh, as, as an inspiration for uh, for the project. Um, and so, with that, I hope the I hope you're going to enjoy listening for episode number two. And uh, unfortunately, I cannot name the guests for the episode three so far, uh, but they will be announced uh, accordingly on the. Awesome Algo channel. Thank you very much for listening. And Seth, one, once again, thanks, you, thanks for joining and being a guest today.